At Trident, safety is at the forefront of all that we do. In the early days, Chuck Bundren can recall saving at least one life a year for 20 years. He trained his people to know exactly what to do in case of an emergency. With a fleet of fishing boats and processors spread out over hundreds of miles of ocean, communication and safety is key. Listen in to gain some understanding about the importance of first response, urgent care in the air. Chapter 16, First Response, Urgent Care in the Air. It was early on July 4, 1992, and the Trident office in Naknek picked up a radio call that a fisherman had possibly drowned at a setnet site on the Quijack River. By this time, Trident had grown substantially and had diversified from its floater-only presence in Bristol Bay by purchasing two plants on the shores of the Naknek River. The plants were located directly across the river from each other in North and South Naknek. Bart Eaton, who had joined the company in 1984, was managing Trident's fleet of salmon tenders, which ferried sockeye from the bay's four major fishing districts to the two Trident shore plants, as well as several floating processors that Trident continued to operate offshore. Trident's operations in the bay had grown too big for one man and one helicopter to keep track of, so Trident had two choppers in the air by then. In addition to performing their regular duties shuttling people, parts, and equipment from place to place, the Trident helicopters were always on call for medical emergencies, and so were Chuck and Bart. No matter what else was going on, no matter whose boat or crewman needed assistance, the Trident aircraft would let go of business as usual and pitch in to assist. I can honestly say that we saved one life a year for 20 years, Bundant recalled, and sometimes it was two or three. Those who take marine first aid and survival classes learn that a person who appears to be dead from drowning may still be alive due to a phenomenon known as the mammalian diving reflex. Many researchers believe this complicated process is triggered when cold water contacts the face of the victim. In response to the cold, the body tries to conserve heat and energy by restricting blood flow to the extremities, keeping warm blood circulating at the body's core. This is one reason why fatigue of the fingers, arms, and legs sets in so quickly in cold water. Another part of the diving reflex involves the heart. A victim's heartbeat can slow dramatically and become nearly undetectable. Think of it as sudden onset hibernation, where the body slows everything to save energy and oxygen. Curiously, in many reported near-drowning cases, the victim has been described as blue, with no respiration or pulse, and fixed dilated eyes, classic indications of death. However, there are recorded cases, many of them involving young children, in which the victims submerged in very cold water for more than 45 minutes have been successfully revived. The message for first responders is to monitor vital signs carefully and keep working on potential cold water drowning victims until they can get them to a professional facility with equipment for proper diagnosis and treatment. Chuck Bundren and Bart Eaton 
were well aware of the importance of quick, determined action when the call for help crackled across the VHF that day. Somebody said there's a body at a setnet site up on the Quijack, Eaton recalled. Of course, I had the helicopter, and when you hear something like that, you just head for the helicopter. Just get the helicopter in the air, and you'll find out what's going on soon enough. Bart called Tim Innebrad, Trident's chief pilot. They hopped in the Hughes 500 and headed toward the Quijack River. Tim and I got there, and this skiff was just making it in with his body. He had a beard like me, Eaton recalled, and it was kind of like looking at myself. I said, let's get him in. Speed is of the essence, so we put him in the back of the 500 and took off for the clinic. I forgot to take my down coat off, Eaton recalled, remembering how hot he got and how much effort it took to breathe for himself and for someone else while doing chest compressions in the cramped confines of the helicopter. If you've ever done CPR, well, it really knocks you out because you're breathing and pumping and going all the time, trying to remember the proper sequence of heart pumps to breaths. Meanwhile, Tim is calling the clinic and telling them to stand by with oxygen. I didn't know this, Eaton continued, but when a guy's blue and you start giving CPR, his face will start turning red even though he's still deader than a doornail. But that gives you hope and you think, damn, this guy's coming back to life. While Eaton was doing CPR in the chopper, Bundrant was at the Knack Clinic, making sure they knew the helicopter was coming in with a potential near-drowning victim. So we got there, and Chuck had everything lined out, Eaton recalled. The door flew open, and they threw him on a stretcher. By this time, Eaton was thoroughly exhausted from administering CPR. I rolled out of the helicopter, and heck, I thought I needed more help than he did. Eaton was incapacitated by his efforts to save the fishermen, so Bunnett took command of the incident response. Just as Eaton had sensed the personal bond with the victim at the setnet site on the Quijack, Bunnett began to empathize with the motionless fisherman as he watched the clinic staff try their best to revive him. They got the clothes off this guy, and they were hitting him with the defibrillator paddles, Bunnett recalled. I'll never forget, he was about 50 years old the same age as me at the time, and I thought, is this somebody's dad or somebody's brother? The staff at the clinic determined there was nothing they could do to save the fishermen, and Bundrant's thoughts went back to the other setnetters who had brought the man in. Surely they'd be worried about his condition, and Bundrant figured it was best to deliver the news in person. Bart was spent, Bundrant recalled, so I told Tim, we've got to get back up there where the setnetters are and tell them he drowned. I jumped in the helicopter, and Tim took me right to the spot where they'd picked up the body. We figured he was probably one of the setnetters. So I go over and tell them the guy we lifted out hadn't made it and was dead. Well, these guys just keep throwing fish, and I'm thinking to myself, man, these are pretty hard-hearted people. The helicopter was still going, and I walked down the beach because I'm thinking maybe somebody there would want to go in and see their dad or their brother. I said, I've got some bad news. He didn't make it, but they just kept picking fish. I said, did you hear me? The guy we just brought out died. One of them said, we think he came off a drifter. Didn't you hear about the boat? At the setnet site, Bundren and Enabrad learned that a 32-foot gillnetter named 90% Angel had flipped upside down at the mouth of the Quijack River, about 10 miles north of Naknek, and a quarter mile offshore of a spot named Graveyard Point. 
The details of the situation were sketchy at the time, but the victim was later identified as crewman Charles J. Miller, age 51, of Yonkala, Oregon. How the gillnetter got into trouble was a story in itself. The predicament aboard the 90% Angel was chronicled in an article written by well-known fisherman and maritime author Joe Upton in the January 1993 issue of the Alaska Fisherman's Journal. As Upton noted, July 4 is a traditional peak of the Bristol Bay sockeye run, and fishing that day was too good to be safe. Sockeye had plugged the net of the 90% Angel, and as the crew struggled to reel the heavily laden gear aboard, the vessel was being carried by the strong wind and tide toward the regulatory line that marked the boundary of closed waters. Winds had increased to 40 knots with higher gusts, and the boat was quickly losing freeboard as the crewmen rolled the net aboard with no time to pick the salmon and put them in the hole. When there was no space left on deck for netting and fish, the crew frantically pulled and twisted wads of cork line and lead line, webbing and sockeye salmon through the cabin door and into the living quarters of the house to shift weight forward. But they couldn't keep ahead of the elements. As the wind and tide stacked the surf up against the shallow sandbar, swamping the fishing deck aft. One of the crew did manage to broadcast a distress call on the VHF radio, but he wasn't able to contact the Coast Guard directly. The call for help had to be relayed by another gillnetter to the Coast Guard communications station in Kodiak. Complicating the issue further was the fact that two other fishing vessels in the vicinity were in similar trouble. A four-engine Coast Guard C-130 patrol plane responded from Kodiak and dropped an emergency pump to one of the other vessels, but with no means to communicate their own deteriorating situation, the four men had to abandon the 90% Angel as it foundered beneath them. The vessel's skipper, Tony Olaf, swam to the aid of the youngest crewman, Chad Campbell, staying with him as they held on to a life ring. Charles Miller and Paul Olaf, Tony's father, floated away to their separate fates. Miller was the first to be discovered. Two set net fishermen were running their skiff across the Quijack estuary when they noticed what they thought was a free-floating red buoy ball. As they pulled alongside to retrieve it, they found Miller, who had tied himself to the buoy before losing consciousness. They hauled Miller aboard and administered CPR while running the skiff back to the set net site to summon help. That's when Enabrad and Eaton heard the call and took to the air. Enabrad and Eaton picked up Miller and rushed him to the clinic, but it wasn't until Bunnett returned to the Setnet side in the helicopter that anyone mentioned a boat. At that point, all they knew was that somewhere offshore, a gillnetter and its crew were in trouble. So we went out, Bunnett recalled, and by the grace of God, because this river is pretty wide, we went straight there, and here is this boat, upside down, with the fishing gear floating all around it. Reflecting on what happened next, Bunnett realized that he was putting his own life in jeopardy, getting involved in a situation he didn't fully comprehend. It's a danger that first responders encounter regularly. Those who rush to the rescue, eager to help, often forget that good intentions do not make you invincible. Like a dummy, I had Tim set the helicopter down so the skid was just touching the keel of the boat, Bunnett recalled. I jumped out on the keel and if this boat had flipped, I'd have been dead meat. But I'm looking in the windows, trying to see if I can spot any bodies inside. 
The house is full of fishing gear and fish are still in the gear. The boat's bobbing down the river upside down. I couldn't see any bodies, so I told Tim to come back and pick me up, and I said, let's go up river. Contrary to the romantic descriptions in travel brochures, Alaska's rivers and estuaries do not always run crystal clear. Pristine as they are, many of them empty into wide, flat tidal plains carrying tons of silty runoff from distant glaciers, snowfields, and soggy tundra. The bottom is often more like mud than sand, and it can suck the boots right off your feet, or worse, trap you, helplessly fatigued, hundreds of yards from shore as the tide shifts and begins to flood. Such was the predicament of skipper Tony Olaf and deckhand Chad Campbell. There was no sign of Paul Olaf when the Trident helicopter arrived, just two sets of deep footprints in the sandbar left by two young men now hopelessly trapped in the muck. The tide was coming in, Bunnett recalled, and here's these two guys buried up to their asses in the sand. Within 30 minutes, they'd be dead meat. Well, you can't land on this quicksand, so Tim sits there and hovers next to them. The first guy kind of got himself in, and I didn't need to help him all that much. He saw the helicopter, and the adrenaline kicked in, and he climbed into my seat. But the other guy couldn't even reach his hands up. Bundert's adrenaline was up too. He had climbed out the passenger door and was sitting on the skids, holding onto the strut with one hand and reaching for the exhausted fisherman with the other. I don't know how I ever did it, Bunnett recalled, but I reached down and I got hold of his belt, and I literally threw his ass right in that door. Mud, slime, rain gear, the whole nine yards, and we were off to the clinic. When we got him there, I think his temperature was 83 degrees. We gave him mouth-to-mouth and oxygen, and come to find out, there was still one guy missing. Charles Miller had been pronounced dead at the clinic. Tony Olaf and Chad Campbell were recovering after their ordeal in the sand, but there was no sign of Tony's father, Paul. The search continued as Trident enlisted the help of other bay processors who had helicopters available to join the effort. We got all our helicopters up and flew patterns all night, but we didn't find him, Bunnett recalled. About a week later, the body of Paul Olaf was found washed up on the beach. Reviewing the details of the tragic incident, Eaton considered what had gone wrong on the 90% Angel and how future emergency responses might be improved in Bristol Bay. We got to thinking about it, Eaton recalled. I was one of the first to talk to the crew, the two guys that survived. Well, I'd gone out there to the boat and I saw four or five survival suits hanging there. I asked them, how come you didn't put your survival suits on? They said, well, we just thought we were going to make it. Survival course instructors frequently talk about the seven steps to survival. The steps are recognition, inventory, shelter, signals, water, food, and play in that order. Recognition is first on the list because understanding that you're in trouble is a prerequisite to action. It can be very difficult to believe that your life is in danger. This can't be happening to me. I'll be fine. Which may be one reason why so many heart attack victims fail to call 911. Denial is likely one of the reasons why skippers sometimes fail to radio a mayday to the Coast Guard until it's too late. Keeping a positive attitude is very important to survival, but not if it overshadows the acknowledgement of grave danger. 
Start a bad situation off with a hefty dose of denial and you've got a recipe for disaster. The Gillnetter 90% Angel was having one heck of a day on the fishing grounds when bad things started happening in rapid succession. They took the problems on one at a time until they were overwhelmed. Had they been able to recognize the futility of trying to save the fish and their gear, they might have simply cut the net and saved the boat and themselves. They were hauling fish up into the pilot house in the net, Eaton recalled, and of course, they got low in the water. The tide was going out, they hit the bottom, and the current just flipped them over. Scores of vessels in the Bristol Bay fleet had heard the distress call and were listening to the drama as it unfolded on the VHF. Somebody had called the Coast Guard, Eaton recalled, but we got to thinking that was one of the first years they had the Coast Guard repeater out there. The Coast Guard regularly installs VHF radio repeaters in remote areas where they don't have a vessel or a manned station. Essentially, a VHF repeater is an automatic unmanned relay station for boosting the power of Coast Guard transmissions and relaying VHF communications from private and commercial vessels. Repeaters are necessary because without one, VHF radio transmissions require a straight line-of-sight pathway. One antenna has to be able to see the other antenna in order to successfully receive the signal. The taller the antenna, the farther it can see. But when the Coast Guard station is over the horizon, it needs a repeater to pick up and relay a mayday or other transmission. The irony, as Eaton noted, is that communicating with the Coast Guard through a repeater can give an operator in distress a false sense that the Coast Guard actually has a manned rescue asset within line of sight of the stricken vessel. Often the voice on the radio comes booming into the pilot house, but real help can still be hundreds of miles away. Most people know that a VHF is a line of sight radio, Eaton recalled, but with a repeater, just because you can talk to the Coast Guard doesn't mean they're right there. It might mean they're still six hours away. I firmly believe there were fishermen up there who didn't know that the call went through a repeater, and you shouldn't have confidence that they're right next door. Eaton didn't just sit on that theory. After the incident, he set out to organize a local volunteer response system that could address Bristol Bay emergencies much faster than the Coast Guard. I went around all the companies, Eaton recalled, and got the names of the helicopters and the names of the pilots, and asked that if the Coast Guard gets an alert, to call us, and we can get somebody in the river system within minutes. It just made so much sense. There wasn't a Trident fisherman who didn't know exactly what to do in an emergency, Bennett recalled. They knew to call the cannery, or call the helicopter directly. The poor guys on that boat just didn't know what to do. It's pretty sad. We hope that you enjoyed Chapter 16, First Response. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you can be the first to know when our next episode is released on Wednesday, June 3rd. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams.